you need your for that reading. Uh, it'd be great if you can keep your Bibles open to chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy, as we'll be referring to it throughout. But let me uh, continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you especially for your word and the opportunity to hear your will through us, through your spirit, as it speaks to us in the word today. Lord, we just pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to know clearly your will for us, to know you more intimately, to draw closer to you in your spirit, uh, and to understand who you are. Father, we pray that what is said and done here is done for your name and the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Well, life, as most of us would know, is full of warnings, full of uh, times in which we are told not to do something. Because if we do a certain action, there will be a consequence. Uh, The obvious warning is the one on the screen. Uh, This is a danger warning. If you touch this, there's a strong likelihood that you will be electrocuted. Uh, If you drive over certain bridges, there's warnings to not jump off those bridges into the river because the river might be shallow uh, and you might hurt yourself. And the point of a warning is simple. Don't do something or there will be a consequence. And it's a kind of a universal language that all of us understand as people growing up. Uh, As children, no doubt most of us were given warnings by our parents. Uh, As parents, for many of you, no doubt have given your children warnings. If you do a certain thing, if you act a certain way, if you don't do a certain thing, if you don't act a certain way, then there will be some sort of consequence for you. Uh, The reality is, is that our life is full of warnings. And warnings are designed to shape our behaviour, to motivate us to not do something or to do something. And they actually are really important aspects of who we are as human beings, that they are actually quite effective in, in, in motivating us, to an extent. But when a warning is ignored, uh, there is often quite serious consequences. Uh, today, our, our passage really serves as a warning to the people of God, a warning of what will happen if they are not obedient to him in their promised land. We begin at verse 28, chapter 28, verse 1, where it says, If you fully obey the Lord your God, carefully follow all his commands I give to you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. As we read in verse 15, we are essentially told the opposite. If you are disobedient, then you will be cursed and brought down. And the warning today is really quite simple. Obey or face destruction. That's not a very happy message, and no doubt many of us are stirring in our our chairs right now, uh, particularly as we we live in a society of of freedom and individualism and, and, and all that sort of stuff. This kind of message can be really confronting. But there's a deeper thing going on here in this chapter than just a simple idea of obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. And it strikes down to the character of who we are as God's people and who God is as our Redeemer. Where, as Matt said, we are still in the second sermon of the book of Deuteronomy that began back in chapter 4. Uh, next week, Jimmy will be preaching on the final chapter of this sermon, verse 30, chapter 32. Uh, and it's a chapter that actually looks to the future, uh, particularly what kind of outcome God's people will ultimately expect in, in their time here in his promised land. And in the very previous chapter, chapter 27, is actually really important because the people of God have gotten together during this speech and agreed to this reality that God is about to talk about. If you go back, you look that God actually makes statements about cursed are those who do specific actions and the people of God agree together. 
And so this passage leads on from that into this idea of if you are obedient, you are blessed. And if you are disobedient, you are cursed. And it's a pretty confronting passage because there are 14 14 verses dedicated to blessings, which is great. And then there are 54 verses dedicated to curses, uh, which can be a a bit discouraging for us as we read this. Uh, But hopefully as we go through it, we'll start to see uh, why it's like that uh, and what we can get away from it. So we'll start firstly with this idea of the blessings. Uh, Verses 1 to 14, uh, ultimately, as we've seen coming from verse 1, if you obey the Lord, they will be blessed with all sorts of things. And here's a whole bunch. This isn't all of them. This is most of them. But there's lots of blessings in here. They'll be high above all the nations. That is, they will be greater than any. Uh, both in their, um, not probably not so much in their physical might, but in the reality of their closeness to God and who they are as God's people. They will be blessed in every aspect of their life. Uh, you, the womb, plants, livestock, this idea of, of life will grow and be abundant in the people of God. While working at home will be blessed, this idea of your hand, what you work with your hands, how you work with your hands, it specifically mentions things like baking and things like that, will be, will be blessed. The enemies of God will be defeated. They will be a people holy, that is, they will be a people worthy of God's presence. They will, this particular one from verse 10, they, other nations will see them, will see God's name and will be afraid. They'll be blessed with abundant rain. Um, you know, as Australians, well, normally we get that, but maybe the last few months we don't really feel that as much, but normally we feel the idea of the blessing of rain. Uh, they'll lend and not borrow. That is, they will be so financially secure that they will not need the support of others, but will be able to support those kingdoms around them. And then finally, this last bit, this idea of you will never be a tail, you will be a head, you will only go up, not down. They will always be on top. They will always be succeeding. And these blessings are encompassing, if you look at it, pretty much every aspect of their life as they live, everything they could want. And really what you actually see here is this idea of a, uh, what it means to live a full life in the presence of God. What does it mean to have God with you every step of the way as you live in his land, as you live in his world? And it's this, this, this window into their future in the promised land, this idea that this will be the world that they have when they are in the presence of God, serving him as his people. Now, this passage, this chapter, uh, then presents us with a question about how do we, what does this mean for us today? Uh, this chapter has been used by a lot of preachers uh, in many different ways. Uh, For many, they have used this as an idea that if you are faithful to God, then you will succeed financially, emotionally, physically, and relationally. Uh, That is to say, every aspect of your life will be improved in a physical sense. You will get lots of money, you will have lots of good relationships, you will have healthy marriages, and you will have all these wonderful things if your faith is good enough. And if your life is miserable, and if your life is hard, then your faith clearly isn't strong enough. And after hearing that, I'm now going to send out the offertory plate for you to... No, sorry. <laughs> it's a bit of a cynical... Sorry, it's a very cynical thing to say. But the point is, is that many look at this passage and interpret it to be this way. That if you are failing in life, that somehow your faith isn't strong enough. And as someone who has been in this church for a long time and who has attended the funerals of many young faithful men who have served God with all their hearts... I can tell you that that interpretation of this passage is entirely wrong. So what things that we need to make 
sure that we understand as we look at this passage, there are a few things that I think are really significant and important. Firstly, we need to understand that this is about God's covenant with a nation. This is a glimpse into the future of God's people as a bordered territory under his command. It links us back to the covenant made in the book of Exodus that you will be a holy, ki- your holy people, a kingdom of priests. This idea that they will be God's physical people geographically located in a specific place that has been prepared for them. And so when we look at that, we need to understand that this is the idea of what it means to be in the presence of God as a nation under him. Because even the people of the Old Testament who would have read this passage would not have believed that faithfulness was the path to success. They would have looked at the book of Job and they would have looked at Psalm 73 and recognised that often the path to success is paved with suffering, pain and difficulty. There's a reason why the majority of the Psalms of the faithful people of God are lament Psalms that express the true reality of suffering on this earth. It's because they recognise that it's a reality of life. And so the promises here are made in the context of a nation. And that's important because this nation is meant to be God's revelation to the world. As we saw in verse 10, they will look and see God's name and they will be afraid. This nation of God was to serve as essentially the image of God to the people around them. Not specifically, that's theologically probably not the greatest term to use, but they were meant to be the representation of God to the world, that they would look at this tiny kingdom that is insignificant, that has more power, more wealth, more thing than anything else in the world, and recognise that it is God who is doing this. It's why God forbids idolatry and other worship of God so severely, because when people are to look at his kingdom and if they see any hint of idol worship, any hint of other gods, they may assume that it is those gods doing the work and not their heavenly father. We need to understand that this is meant to be an idea of God's revelation to the world. And then as God's people today, we actually have to recognise the reality of Christ and the future. This book of Deuteronomy is looking to the future with anticipation and excitement of what is to come in faithfulness. And today we as God's people actually do the same thing. We look to the future with anticipation and excitement for what awaits us. But we recognise that that path is a hard and long path. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, this is the words of Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? It is made clear that Christ who has brought us As God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt in redemption to the promised land, Christ has brought us out of our sin and leads us towards the kingdom of God and we look with excitement for what awaits. And in many ways, this this passage, these blessings serve as, as an understanding of the reality of what it will be for us to be one with God in every aspect as his people together. Recognizing that the path there is not yet complete. That we live in a world that is broken, that is sinful. That we worship a king who died on a cross and suffered. 
And to be blessed in that language, to be blessed in that understanding, is to suffer just like him. And so there's a sense of irony in the Christian faith in reflecting on this passage because we are told in the epistles that it is such joy to be persecuted. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, to face suffering for the name of Jesus Christ because we know we are counted as his people in that. Uh, this passage, as I said, has been used to uh, interpret what uh, this idea of prosperity, but it's also important that we understand this because it's also been used in the inverse, this idea of, of people are punished in this world. And again, if you understand these three points, then you recognise that when there is a flood down the road, it is not God's punishment on this earth because the punishments are, are explicitly presented to the people of God as his kingdom, not to the world. Yes, God's wrath is comes upon the world occasionally throughout Scripture. But these punishments, this passage, is talking to his kingdom at his place at his time, not to this world. So when you see a preacher get up and proclaim that the recent tsunami in whatever country, I don't mean that to be flippant to that sort of pretty awful thing, but just more, I can't think of a specific one off the top of my head. We know that it is not because, it is because of sin. But it's not the wrath of God as expressed here in this passage, specifically to the people of God. And that then leads us specifically into this idea of the curses. We get 15, 14 verses of, of, of blessings and then 54 verses of these curses. Uh, and I think the, the, the reality of this is simple. It's the, it's the polar opposite of what you receive in your blessings. Uh, the verses are, particularly verses are 15 to 20 kind of a, pretty much directly the polar opposites of what God has promised. And it's interesting, it's not, it's not a middle ground. There's no middle ground here. There's no, I won't bless you. It's, it's, it's either you get blessed or you get cursed. There is no sort of middle halfway point with God in this relationship. And he actually, I think, describes the ultimate outcome of what will happen to his people uh, in verse 20. It says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything that you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. There are four key things that will happen to the people of God should they reject God. They'll be cursed, they'll be thrown into confusion, they'll be rejected, and they'll be destroyed. They'll be cursed in the sense of God will curse them, as he's already said. They will face many sufferings. They will be uh, confused. And this language is really significant. This language is generally used for the enemies of God in battle. God throws their armies into confusion. They are lost. They are panicked. They don't know which direction to run. They are fearful. They are rejected. The word that your Bibles will say, if you've got a Bible in front of you, will probably say the word rebuked. Uh, and it's this kind of the same idea. It's not the rebuking of a loving brother of Christ bringing you to Jesus. It's the rebuking in the sense of saying no. I will not answer that prayer. I will not hear your call. And then ultimately, it's destruction. And really what this passage highlights, uh, it highlights to us, I think, the reason why there are 54 verses in this passage that talk about curses. You might look at this passage and go, a lot of people have looked at these kinds of passages and gone, well, God is just cruel. He only does spend a little bit of time talking about joyful things, and then he spends a really long time talking about bad things. 
And often some people will preach, and they'll, they'll almost preach as if there's two gods. There's the Jesus God, you know, the loving God, and then there's the Old Testament God who we should, um, you know, we don't need to worry about anymore. He's gone. Which makes no sense, because Jesus even affirms the Old Testament to us as the Word of God, good for teaching, rebuking, and training. To help you understand this, I want you to think, think back to when you were a child, or maybe you're still our child, think that. You're hanging with your friends, or your family, your brothers, your parents aren't around, authority figures are absent at this point. And your friends or family want to do something that you know is wrong. And so you say out loud, I don't think this is a good idea, or I don't want to do this, it's not a good idea, or we might get in trouble. And your friend or brother or sister says, don't worry about it, we'll be fine. Or maybe you're the person in those days that would say, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. This is what lies at the heart of humanity and its sin, is that we are very, very good at saying, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. We sin and we do not mourn for our sin because we think it's okay. We think it's fine. So when you see in this passage there are 54 verses dedicated to curses, it's not because God's just like throwing a tantrum, it's because God is trying to hammer home the point that this is serious. This is real, that there is real consequence for turning against God and worshipping others. That there is real punishment, there is real cursing, there is real suffering. There's real seriousness in the judgment of God. It is not something that can be taken lightly. It's not something that can be dismissed as though it's okay. The reason I didn't read it all was because I think it would be quite a, a slog for us to sit here and hear it because it is hard. And so, but I would encourage you, as you if you go home tomorrow in your time, read through. See the seriousness of what that sin means to the lives of those who commit it. We are really good at convincing ourselves that it will be okay. I've heard plenty of famous... Uh, um, Comedians through their life come to their moment, their last interviews where they talk about their life and they go, do you regret anything? And sometimes they'll, they'll talk about deep regrets. I remember a few of them, back in, back in the time when uh, God was a big part of the public uh, discussion, often they would be asked, are you worried about what God will say when he meets you? And most said, no. I think it'll be all right. And it's an interesting thing for us to consider. What will happen when God meets you? What will happen when God sees you? Sin is serious, and judgment is serious more. Serious, serious. Judgment is serious. It's pretty serious. But why, why do we sin? I mean, we, we theologically break down the reality of human, human arrogance and all that sort of stuff. But there's, I think what God is actually going about here, and there's a real key... Uh, thing that we need to understand as we read this passage, because right now you might be thinking, this is still pretty bad. I'm not, like, feeling uplifted in any way, shape, or form. Yes, there's blessings, but there's a lot, like, okay, there's a lot of curses. And we need to realise that we're looking at this passage, we're looking at Deuteronomy in the context of a relationship with God. Throughout, God has called his people to be his people, and they will be his God. And we've discussed the whole time as we looked at the book of Deuteronomy, this idea that relationships do have rules. Every relationship you enter into has rules. And God, just like everyone else, has rules for his relationship. The difference is that your relationship is with the creator of the universe, 
not with Tim, the assistant minister. And that's important to understand because then I think really in in the second part of our reading, we highlight the key problem at the heart of the people of God when it comes to this sin. It comes from verse 45. It says, They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever. That is the, the, the curses. They will recognize what they mean. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies of the Lord. You'll serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. I think that line there, it slipped in there, but it highlights the crux of humanity's sinfulness and and humanity's disobedience. The core aspect, one of the most important verses of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It serves as a summary of the entirety of the law of God. When Jesus is asked in the Gospels, what is the greatest commandment? He responds with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The heart is the core issue of our sin. We are granted this peace from God and yet we often don't find ourselves joyfully embracing it but instead taking it for granted and almost using it to abuse others. Disobedience is a problem of the heart. It is a problem of who we are. Obedience, true obedience in the eyes of God comes from knowing that you are loved, treasured and redeemed by Jesus Christ and living in that world. There's a reason that throughout the book of Deuteronomy God says over and over again, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is their redemption. That is their salvation. That is the moment they were restored. For us now, we look to the cross and we see that God has brought us out of our condemnation, redeemed us. The problem of the heart is that we take it for granted or we, 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 ta- we accept it but then don't realise the severity of what it means. God warns the people of God in this passage of the dangers of pulling away from him. And ultimately, I want to say that those dangers still exist. If you believe in a God that forgives you, then you have to believe in a God that judges this world. You have to believe that there is a condemnation coming. And our motivation from that, as I've said time and time again as we've read through Deuteronomy, is not to laugh at the world, to mock the world, to publicly condemn the world, but to do what we can to bring the message of Jesus to save the world. To turn their hearts from their sin to God. Only Jesus has the power to do that. Obedience of God is an expression of faith brought about by joy knowing that you are adopted as a son and daughter of God through the cross. The final thing I wanted to consider today is uh, as we look to our warnings, what warnings are there in your life? What sin is hiding under the surface? 
It was interesting, I, I read a, I don't know what you call them, they're like mentors of ministers. I don't know if they have, I mean, we call them bishops in the Anglican system, but like generally, it was a guy who was mentoring a bunch of ministers, and he talked about some of the deeper struggles that ministers have, and he said because they're so public, because they have to be up the front and, and, and have this persona, they struggle to find ways to actually deal with their sin because they can't confess it to anyone. They can't share it with anyone because they're afraid that if they share their sin that they will somehow lose their ability to be up the front. And I'm not talking about like deep, serious uh, sins that would remove you from the office of, of, this, of being a minister. I'm just talking about basic sin. Anger. Language. Just the way that we spend our money. I think the hardest part about being in a church is that we struggle to share our sin. Uh, and so my encouragement to you today, as we've re- read this passage, we've realised the severity of sin is twofold. It's, first of all, find your hidden sin and share it with somebody. Find the sin that is hiding under the surface. Share it with someone. You don't have to, I'm not going to ask you to come up the front and get a microphone and publicly tell us all what's the sin you're dealing with. No, that's, I don't think that would help any of us. I mean, it might help like two of us. Maybe one. But... There are people in your life I hope that you can trust. And if someone does share with you your sin, acknowledge that it is Jesus who is bringing salvation and it is Jesus who is bringing judgment and you are there as his children to love one another and direct another to God, not to judge. And secondly, if you are here and you don't know where you lie with God, if you've read this passage and you, are, you find it distressing and rightfully show it, no one should look at the judgment of the people of this earth and find it gleeful. But recognise that this doesn't have to be the way it is for you. This doesn't have to be the future that awaits you. In Jesus, we are redeemed. And yes, we still struggle with our sin, and yes, our hearts still need mending continuously, but we know in every day of our life that we can come to our Father and confess and be made new. Don't ignore the warning signs of your faith. Don't ignore the warning signs of the Spirit. But instead, embrace Jesus, seek forgiveness, and love him with your whole heart. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were far off, uh, you brought us near through your Spirit. Lord, we thank you through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ that we now stand forgiven, adopted as your children, embraced in your love. Father, we pray that you help us to, to, to identify and seek out the sin within us, to confess it to those that we need, and especially confess it to you, that we can draw on your forgiveness and be loved and treasured as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.